Hello and welcome to Insight Cambridge, a podcast that brings you inside Cambridge with news, views and insight from world experts. This week I spoke to the historian Professor Robert Toombs and the economist Dr Graham Gudgeon. They're both very well respected in their fields and together they founded the pro-Brexit group briefings for Britain. I caught up with them to ask why they founded the group, why they support Brexit and what they make of where we've come so far. I came up with a name, I think. That's Professor Toombs. Because we wanted something fairly neutral. Um, there were various ideas being kicked around and this and this was the this was the dullest. But I don't know who had the original idea. I think it was Graham. I remember the thing that I most most motivated me, which was when um, I, I met Graham. We hadn't known each other before this enterprise began. We didn't know each other at all. Um, but I, I knew, uh, I discovered that he'd done some important research on the economics of Brexit. And yet the, the, the sorts of um, newspapers, the Financial Times, The Economist, etc., you would think would be interested in this, were not publishing any of it. And I thought, well, we ought to do some, we ought to try and get this, this, this work discussed and, and known. And so this was our very small effort. We were a very tiny, tiny group of people, originally three and then two, and now, um, uh, you know, uh, really only in single figures with a, a larger group of supporters. We, uh, we decided that this would be one way of um, trying to get things discussed which were otherwise not being discussed, which were, in a sense, being, being boycotted by the main... Well, OK, I was going to say the mainstream media, that's a sort of loaded phrase, but by the sorts of newspapers that you would think ought to have been interested. So why weren't the likes of The Economist and The Financial Times interested then? Um, well, of course, they represent... OK, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, uh, though I, I have been told by a, a former FT journalist that um, certain views were not welcome. In fact, he just got the sack. Uh, and also they do, after all, represent in some senses pow certain powerful economic interests, um, especially large international companies for whom the EU, as, for the reasons Graham said, for whom the EU may well have been an advantage um, it may not be an advantage for people as a whole, but it's certainly an advantage for some people. And those people are often the ones who buy newspapers like the FT or, or The Economist, or indeed, maybe even own, own parts of them. I'm not saying that they deliberately told untruths, but they, that there was certain, a certain version of the truth, as it were, that was much more congenial to them than, than others. And I think, as, as we all remember, once the EU referendum campaign had got underway, and after the referendum vote itself, the two sides became so entrenched in their positions that I think to to um, to, to, to to accept or to listen to even or to reproduce other views became increasingly difficult. Um, if I might say, I, I myself was I, to, to do them them credit. The, the Financial Times a couple of times asked me to write op-ed columns. And never had made any attempt to influence what I said, of course. But I've never had such um, extremely aggressive and rude comments from readers as from FT readers. So the FT, as it were, the FT community, uh, its journalists and its readers, espoused a particularly strongly held pro-EU view. And of course, those are the sort of people all over Europe who do hold that view. It would be a mistake to think of the British on one hand and the Europeans on, on the other hand holding very different views about the EU. Um, they, on the whole, they hold rather similar views about the EU. 
Um, and certain groups within those societies are strongly motivated either for or against the EU, and they tend to be very similar in every country. Just picking up on your comment that certainly in the run-up to and post-referendum, people were very sort of entrenched in their positions. Is that why the briefings for Britain newsletter, the editor is an anonymous PhD student, someone who doesn't want to put their head above the parapet? Yes, though I think it would be unfair to say that that student doesn't want to put his or her head above the parapet. We advised that person not to do so because we knew how um, how strongly held pro-EU Remainer views are within the academic community. And for someone who's trying to start an academic career, um, it's, very, it's not a good idea to, um, as it were, to be marked down at the outset as being someone who holds unacceptable views. Um, according to the, the Times Educational Supplement, 90% of academics uh, were are or were remainers and uh, I think we we do think um, that young academics in vulnerable positions um, ought to be protected against the possible prejudices of their elders and superiors in fact i've and I've, I've also been told by senior academics that they don't want to be identified, which is rather odd uh, a little anecdote absolutely true um uh, I was at a conference this was i was I was approached by a professor in another university who said how much he agreed with um, with us. And I said, would you like to write something f- for the website? And he said, I would like to, but I'm applying for a job at another university. And until I've got that job, I, I don't dare to be to come out, as it were, as a, as a lever. So you can see that there are pressures. Whether they're exaggerated or not, it's impossible to say. But I think they're at least reasonable. There are reasonable fears that people's careers would suffer if they were identified as being in favour of leave. What are Graham's reasons for thinking that EU membership is good for the kinds of people who read The Economist and the Financial Times, but not good for the country as a whole? I have an unconventional belief, but it's, I, I, I think, solidly supported by the evidence, which is that for many countries, joining a free trade association doesn't help the economy as a whole. And so, for instance, the uh, UK economy has grown more slowly since we joined the EU than it did in, in the decades before we joined the EU in 1973. The same was true of Denmark, for instance. The same was true of Canada joining, uh, joining the uh, North American Free Trade uh, Association. And the reason for that is that free trade allows the most efficient companies in each country to uh, to expand and get uh, get economies of trade, but in doing so, they knock out the inefficient producers in in other countries. Um, so, a clear example in the in the North American case, for instance, is that Canada had uh, car assembly plants. In fact, they they were just across the border from Detroit, but uh, they, they were in Canada and they were protected. So the free trade agreement, they became uncompetitive and uh, and they had to close. But the, and uh, other Canadian companies gained uh, gained efficiency by having a bigger bigger market, and and American car producers gained by have by you know, having better access to the Canadian market. So individual companies can gain, but whether the country as a whole gains 
really depends on whether the employees of the companies which close are then re-employed and particularly re-employed uh, at a similar uh, wage level and that seems not to happen so people working in car plants or steel plants that, that close um, end up uh, for many years they're probably unemployed but um, uh, they may end up getting jobs in Starbucks or in retailing or whatever but it, at much lower wages than they uh, they previously got in manufacturing and if that's the case the country as a whole doesn't gain and that looks like a much more prevalent pattern than than many people and many economists will admit and why did Graham vote leave in 2016 so I take the view that look for the UK you either have to say look we're we're content to end up that's not even in my lifetime. I mean, I'm in my 70s now, but certainly in the lifetime of my children and grandchildren, the UK to end up as a province of the United States of, of Europe. Or it's better to reassert our, our national sovereignty, um, be friendly, you know, helpful to uh, European countries, or what the Prime Minister uh, continually refers to as our friends in Europe. And I hope they are. And, will continue to be our friends in Europe, um, but to, to maintain our sovereignty. And I've always taken the view that that, that uh, that's a better, uh, better way to proceed, not least because the ability of a, a state to protect its weaker members, its poor and its poorer regions depends on a, a belief in that state and a, and a, a national identity. And the EU, I think, will never be able to uh, achieve that, um, as was shown by the, the very bad behaviour of the Germans towards the Greeks during the, uh, after the banking crisis. And it can't do that because there isn't, I think, what Robert referred to as a, a European demos, that, that there isn't a national identity of, uh, of Europe. And Northern Europeans, including the Germans, just aren't willing to subsidise Southern Europeans and Greeks, who they see as uh, as rather lazy and self-indulgent. The EU has always been, in some senses, an, an undemocratic and even an anti-democratic system. Professor Toombs, on what the lack of a European national identity means for the EU and how it works. Uh, but as long as this was simply dealing with... Um, basic rules of, e of trade, that didn't matter very much. But the more it became involved in of, of governing a whole continent, then the, the more glaring its so-called democratic deficit became. So I was always rather suspicious of the wish to create a federation, because I couldn't see how this would be compatible with, with democracy. This is very commonplace view, of course. There, there is no European demos so how could there be a European democracy? Um, major decisions of policy are made outside the democratic arena. I mean, many people have written about this. Uh, the way in which decisions are removed from public debate and indeed in public vote and become a matter of diplomacy and diplomatic negotiation behind closed doors. And there is simply no way for member states, I mean, we see this over and over again, to actually um, avoid decisions that are made on their behalf by others. Now, you, you could say, of course, well, Europe's really, a, you know, Europe ought to be a federation. It's, there ought to be a European demos, and maybe one day there will be, but there isn't now. 
And one sees this very clearly in the case of countries which have voted against certain EU decisions and which have in one way or another had those votes overruled. I mean, the, the, the most blatant cases are Italy and Greece, both of which, not, not coincidentally, are the countries that have suffered most from European membership. But one also sees that in Ireland, I think two Irish referenda overruled, in Denmark, a referendum overruled, in France and Holland, votes against the European constitution simply bypassed. And this is what I was saying about a systematic lack of democracy. A European elite, an elite, okay, the sort of elite that, that we all belong to, you know, a, a sort of middle-class, um, right-thinking, progressive elite, uh, decides on what is going to happen. And those who don't like it are in one way or another um, sidelined or ignored. Um, and I think that's the way the EU does in fact run. The point is taken, decisions get made behind closed doors by faceless people who most of us you know, will never know. But the problem there is with modern politics, right? Not with the EU per se. I mean, how many MPs read a bill? before they vote on it. They get the text from the whip's office. The decision has been taken behind closed doors by the leader and presumably assorted special interests. And then people go and vote how they're told. One of the reasons why the referendum, I think, ignited such a passion on both sides is because one of the few genuinely democratic events that we've had ever. Sure, the EU is not a perfect democracy, but Nowhere is a perfect democracy. What makes the EU in particular so kind of egregious or undemocratic? Democracy is partly about getting rid of the people who govern you. Um, and uh, there's no way you can get rid of the European Commission, the President of the Commission. Uh, the European Parliament has never done that, even in, in cases of flagrant corruption. So I think you you have to say, well, okay... There are, there are democratic elements or a hostile critic might say pseudo-democratic elements in the European system, but they're not fundamentally, those who are running it are not fundamentally accountable. So that's, I think, the essential difference. But the UK was never a member of the euro. John Major got us an exception to the ever closer union clause in the Maastricht Treaty, and the UK only lost 12% of European council votes between 2009 and 2015. Did we really have anything to fear from an apparently undemocratic United States of Europe? Didn't we have the best of both worlds, half in and half out? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that exemption means uh, means very much. Um, since the drift towards ever closer union carries on. Uh, anyway, it, it is true that the UK has important exemptions and several of my close Friends who voted remain in the in the referendum cite that that um, that there there is a third way for for the UK, and that's to be a semi-detached member of the of the EU, and perhaps in future to have more and more exemptions, um, and that's possible. I mean, I, I you know I can see that argument, but I think if you you know. If you don't want to be a full-hearted member of the European Union, I think it's better to, to, to leave it rather than to be a, 
a dissident in a sense. You know, the EU is the UK is always trying to slow down what the EU is is uh, is doing, and if it can't prevent it, then to try and get any uh, try and get an exemption is possible. But it's an unsatisfactory state of affairs. What concrete advantages do you see for the UK? What will we be able to do outside the EU that we couldn't do in it? Well, I, th- I think that that'll become clearer over time. Um, yeah, I, I think this is a long-term proposition that we'll probably divert in terms of uh, regulatory state. I mean, just to take what, what, one example, uh, uh, GM plants, GM foods are banned in the, in the EU, um, not, not in the USA. And there's probably no great reason to, to have them banned in the, uh, in the UK. We can probably make our agriculture more efficient by uh, allowing GM crops. That would be controversial in the UK, but that's one at least possibility. But there'll be many possibilities of that sort which will emerge over uh, uh, over time. But the EU, I think, tends to be overcautious and overprotective, um, and, and, and the, the UK will will become more like the uh, USA in some respects, not in every respect, but in, uh, in 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 some respects. And we'll we'll renew our contacts with the English-speaking world. I mean, I think the English-speaking world is the, the Anglosphere, is, is our actual cultural cultural world. My daughter, for instance, who is a medic at Cambridge, when she had to do her elective in a foreign country, her and all her friends shot off to Australia, which is about as far as we could go, but didn't go to France or Germany. And, you know, that's very common for, uh, for young British people because you go to Australia, it's very comfortable and and um, uh, recognisable. That's our cultural world. We damaged our relationships, I think, with, with much of the Commonwealth by joining the EU. And I'm very pleased to see that they, they don't seem to hold grudges about that. They, they seem to be pleased that, we're, that we've left the EU and, uh, and, and uh, keen to renew stronger relationships with us, including, of course, free trade agreements. In, in what way does being in the EU hold Britain back from selling to, say, Australia, New Zealand, America, Canada? Clearly doesn't stop Germany selling outside the EU. Why should it stop the UK? Well, it, 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 probably do, it does stop Germany in certain respects, but in, in many respects, Germany's got a strong industrial system and uh, you know, it's got goods that China, China wants to buy. Well, that's not relevant to the UK. The advantage of the UK being outside the EU is it has more flexibility. It doesn't have to reflect the the needs of Italian textile producers in in setting its uh, its tariff levels. You're, you're obviously less flexible if you have to uh, re- reflect the uh, the needs and economic sensitivities of a wide range of uh, other countries. If it's just yourself, then you can. You, you can set up a, a, a tariff system of trade trade arrangements which just reflect your own your, your own economy, not the economy of others. And can you realistically see the potential economic gains of that outweighing um, not necessarily no access but reduced access to what was until then forty three percent of your exports, i.e., the EU single market? Not immediately, I think, is the answer to that. Uh, I mean, I think that there will be a small, small net initial loss of trade, but in the long run, yes. I mean, the, the obvious long-run strategy for the UK is to join what's called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, although the Pacific sounds a long way away, it's uh, that the the TPP 
uh, which includes Japan, which we already we now have a free trade agreement with. It also includes most um, uh, many major Commonwealth countries. It includes six Commonwealth countries actually. It includes Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. Uh, but it includes fast-growing Far Eastern uh, economies. And if the US, if the US join as they intended to before Donald Trump became president, and probably will do now that uh, Donald Trump is uh, is on his way out. Um, and if the South Koreans join as they um, as they appear to intend to, then the TPP will already account for uh, nearly 30% of UK trade. It's over 25% uh, and be a much faster growing market. One of the disadvantages of being economically tied to the EU is it's a very slow growing market. It's a declining part of world trade, whereas the Far East, of course, is, is much faster growing. Um, so for the UK to tie itself to faster growing markets, you know, we've been tied to slow, slow growing uh, European markets. Now's a good time to get out of that and to, to switch horses. The European countries, by the way, which aren't members of the EU, are all the richest countries. Well, so uh, Switzerland, okay. Iceland, and Norway. But Norway is in the EEA. Switzerland is in something which looks very much like the EEA. And Iceland, I'm not actually sure, but I'd be very surprised if it wasn't in some way close to the EU. To take the Swiss as an example, they have freedom of movement. They have to follow and implement almost all directives and laws. I think it's not the European Court of Justice which judges them, but the European Court of Justice in combination with some kind of small Swiss panel. I, really, what do they have that we don't? Well, they, 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 uh, they have a, a whole set of um, individual industry agreements with the EU. The EU hates that. They find it... They find it messy and and uh, have to be renegotiated all the time, but they uh, they do have trade agreements. They also currently have, uh, uh, free movement, although a recent Swiss referendum said that the population of Switzerland would like to end that. Um, which I mean, I mean the, the EU a lot the, of difficulty. The most recent one, they actually um voted by quite a large margin to reject the call to end freedom of movement. Uh, the Swiss others, because a few years ago, when they narrowly voted to reject it, or they had narrowly voted to reject it, the Swiss went to the EU and said, we've had this vote. And the EU said, you have a choice. You can break off your trade links with us, or you can keep freedom of movement, because that's what our treaties say. And the Swiss said, uh, we'll keep trading with you, please. Yeah, that's that's true. But, uh, I could... They, they can they can change their mind if they want. There are always consequences for uh, for doing anything, especially with a big and aggressive neighbour like the uh, like, like the EU. But uh, you can, as a sovereign, you you, uh, you can do it. As a member of the EU, you can't. But but, but a, big, a big and relatively powerful country like the UK has obviously got more uh, more elbow room than uh, countries like uh, like uh, Norway or Iceland. But but look, I, I'm not disagreeing. With that there are there are constraints on 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 sovereignty, but that nevertheless sovereignty means something. Uh, uh, by the way, if it didn't, you know, why is the EU so uh, so allergic uh, to the UK going its own way? 
But sovereignty without power is like a river without water. The UK might be bigger and more powerful than Norway or Iceland, but is it really so big and so powerful that the control we gain in leaving the EU won't be undermined by the strength we lose? I put this to Professor Toombs and Dr Gudgeon drawing on the example of the Irish border. In what some claim is a sincere effort to make sure no border infrastructure comes back on the island of Ireland, but others claim is an attempt by the EU to punish the UK and keep it as close as possible to the bloc, the withdrawal agreement between the two makes quite clear that much of EU law is expected to continue in Northern Ireland. So as things stand, it looks like there's now effectively an internal border in the United Kingdom, separating Great Britain from Northern Ireland. If leaving the EU means getting sovereignty back, what kind of sovereignty is this? Do you think it'd be fair to say we've essentially hived off Northern Ireland to the EU? Um, in some ways, for the foreseeable... I mean, I think it seems to me the danger is that um, the EU will um, continue to use Northern Ireland. I mean, I think it, it's, it seems to me fairly clear now, sorry, this is a slightly roundabout answer, that the negotiations between us and the EU are not going to simply end with an agreement, and that will be it. Perhaps that has been an illusion in the past. There will be constant tug-of-war going on for years to come, perhaps permanently. Um, and uh, as long as Northern Ireland is, um, to some extent, within under the sway of the EU, in, illegally, in some senses, and as long as the, uh, there are disadvantages imposed on Northern Ireland and on the UK by the um, by the, in, in, including by the, the present withdrawal agreement, then why would the EU not um, continue to use it, as you said, um, or at least you suggested that, that was, this was all fair, fair play? Um, yeah, I think Johnson was forced to accept an agreement that was very still very disadvantageous, just about acceptable, because it committed the EU to um, a free trade agreement because if there were a free trade agreement in goods, then in theory, the whole um, Irish problem ought to disappear. Um, but if there isn't such an agreement, then um, uh, why would the EU not continue to use Northern Ireland as a, as a, as a weapon, in a sense? So, as I said, with a caveat, it, it's not entirely clear. I think you'd agree whether it's just a negotiating gambit, like an audacious strategy, or whether it's a genuine concern which they are trying to meet you know if you're Leo Varadkar and you think under all circumstances I want absolutely no infrastructure whatsoever I just will not stand for it I won't go down in history as the Irish Prime Minister who saw anything resembling a border come back he goes to the EU Council and says in negotiations please make sure nothing that even resembles a border comes back yeah I mean in a sense it's kind of Ironically, in leaving the EU, you could say it's been one of the best arguments for it. Ireland by itself is presumably not so strong in a negotiation with the United Kingdom. But when it's got 26 other countries on side, it can make its demands felt. You, yes, except you're assuming that these are Ireland's demands and that they're in the interests of Ireland. If, uh, if there's no deal, I think we agree Ireland would suffer. If there is, if there is, though I doubt that there will be, at least I certainly hope not, if there is a, a return of, of violence in Ireland, Ireland will suffer, not, not so much Great Britain. Um, the Irish economy 
both the northern and the southern Irish economies are likely to be damaged by this kind of standoff. Uh, so you would think that an Irish government that really had the interests of the whole of the of the island of Ireland at heart would have wanted to come would be, have wanted to find an amicable solution rather than pressing its case in a I mean it, either in what could be a very nationalist way you could say this this is their chance to um, to get a united Ireland possibly um, though I doubt that they could afford Northern Ireland. Um, and indeed, I think many Irish people accept that. Um, but it seems to me that, that both sides have been playing with fire, at least that the, the Dublin and Brussels authorities have been playing with fire in using this issue, which is a very delicate one. After all, it's the most delicate border in Western Europe. Is that a price worth paying for Brexit, in your view? Um, well, it shouldn't be a price to be paid. Um, uh but it's going to be. Well, not if there's a free trade agreement. And I think in any case, well, of course, we don't know what happens. Mm. It could be, though I don't know if Boris Johnson has the nerve to do this, it could be that the withdrawal agreement will be, could be denounced on the grounds that the EU has not been negotiating in good faith. Um, so that, that, would, that would leave us all with nothing after four years and more of, um, of negotiation. If it were the price to be paid, would it be a price worth paying? Uh, the unification of Ireland. Uh, not necessarily the unification of Ireland, but simply what's stated in the current withdrawal agreement now. So Article 13, subsection 6, authorities of the United Kingdom shall not act as a leading authority for risk assessments, examinations, etc., etc., made applicable by this protocol, i.e. it will be a part of the United Kingdom with customs and the like done by officials from a foreign country or a foreign power, the EU? Uh, well, for a transitional period, I don't think that really matters too much personally. Um, I don't think it would last long. And you're, you're talking about, is this talking about sort of animal health regulations and so on? Uh, the, the protocol is, is not very specific. It seems quite wide ranging, clearly. So this is the what was once the backstop and has now in Johnson's agreement become permanent subject to a vote every four or eight years. Yes. Well, we'd have to hope that a vote in four years will, will, will scrap it. But of course, as I say, if, um, if, um, if, if there seems to be no movement towards a proper agreement, I mean, if there's a free trade agreement, then this becomes obsolete. If there's no free trade agreement, then why should the British government continue with the with the withdrawal agreement following on from brexit it seems to well it doesn't seem to me you just have to read the withdrawal agreement northern ireland is more or less following eu regulations uh which britain has no say in drawing up it's kind of the great irony of brexit the whole the eu is undemocratic thing is acting like a foreign power it's become truer than ever well i i I agree with you i think it's a very unsatisfactory situation Dr. Gudgeon. And the, you know, the final version of the withdrawal agreement agreed at, at the end of 2019 was, was extremely unsatisfactory. And by the way, I think it, it's, it, it's, it's now being surreptitiously undone in, in Parliament, partly in the Internal Markets Bill, but probably even more importantly in the, uh, in, in, in the uh, Money Bill, which has now been drafted but not, uh, not yet laid in, uh, in, in Parliament to try and undo the worst aspects of the uh, uh, of the Northern Ireland Protocol. But sure, the Northern Ireland Protocol is completely unsatisfactory. It means that the EU can uh, can legislate for 
for commercial regulations in Northern Ireland. But I also I also appreciate you know, how we got ourselves into that mess, and it's because of things like the Benham Amendment and the the huge the attempt by by many in Parliament to uh, to block Brexit and to campaign for a second referendum. And in the Benham Amendment, it, it effectively gave gave the EU carte blanche. It said we we uh, you know, we, uh, we couldn't leave without an agreement. In which case. That allowed the EU to, deter, to uh, determine the terms of that agreement. So, the way Boris Johnson dealt with that was, okay, let, let let's sign let's sign a quick agreement with the EU. However, unsatisfactory, we'll get an election, and then we'll we'll strengthen the position of the uh, uh, of the UK. And I think the Northern Ireland has been a sacrificial lamb in all all of that. I see. So the whole Brexit saga is. Um not for you proof that there's a difference between sovereignty and power and the UK decided to trade in real power for theoretical sovereignty, but proof for you that there's a, a remain a fifth column in Parliament stopping the UK government from negotiating properly. No, no not at all. As I said earlier with this, uh, in, in this conversation, that there are real gains from, from sovereignty. Sovereignty is, is, is not complete. Uh, well, has to any country has to live with its neighbours in the world, and uh, uh, and there are constraints in doing so. Um, civilized world needs agreements between countries on all sorts of things, and that provides constraints on the freedom of action of uh, of, uh, of countries. But it doesn't mean it doesn't mean it has no freedom of action. I mean, this this isn't a matter of black and white. It's a matter of shades, shades of grey. Is losing. Northern Ireland, uh, a price worth paying to regain sovereignty. We're not losing Northern Ireland. That, 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 that's a gross exaggeration. Well, it, it's, it's, uh, it gives the EU control over some, some commercial regulations. Don't it is, it is fairly wide-ranging. But, it, but nevertheless, it's, uh, it's a long way short from saying that the UK is, uh, from Northern Ireland, is no longer in the, uh, in, in, in the UK. I, I, I have a house in I live there for part of the year. Many of my friends are in North, and I'm. Uh, I, I know many politicians in Northern Ireland, particularly in the Democratic Unionist Party. And uh, although they have concerns about this, they, they, you know, they don't regard it as the uh, as the end of the world by any means. Mm -hmm. So, just about palatable now that. People in well, the Northern Ireland Assembly has to consent to it democratically. Well, um, I mean, the, the the view I think of the majority of pro Brexiteers in the UK is, is is that what's happened in Northern Ireland is a uh, is a price they are willing to pay in order to have Brexit. I.e., they wouldn't give up Brexit in order to um, uh, give up those, uh, those those trade barriers. But as I've already said, I. I I think those arrangements are uh, quite unfortunate and indeed unnecessary. And looking to the future, what would a successful deal with the EU look like for the UK? Well, I think it would be like a normal free trade deal. In other words, it would be free. There would certainly be. Free, we would allow free trade in in goods. Uh, there ought to be in return some sort of uh, recognition of of British financial and services industry, recognition of mutual standards and so on. 
Um, but essentially, I think what would make an acceptable deal or a good deal from Britain's point of view is that um, we would not be required to come under the continuing jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. In other words, when there are differences of opinion about what the agreement means, they should be arbitrated by a neutral body and not by the court of one of the two parties, which is what the EU has been demanding, but which is absolutely, which is practically unheard of in international relations. Um, that there should not be a, a ratchet clause. In other words, if the EU decides unilaterally to change its regulations, we are forced to change our regulations too. And by the way, um, although this is always presented as trying to stop Britain from um, from derogating from the, the EU's high standards, in many areas our standards are, are much higher than those of the EU. We subsidise industries less than the EU does. Um, and so you have to ask yourself, what is it the EU is really trying to get at? Why is it doing this when, from, from a practical point of view, there seems little point in it? And I think the answer is it wants to make sure that Britain remains to some degree under the control of European institutions. And that, I think, is something that we really ought not to accept any more than we would accept, for example, if we were to sign a free trade agreement with the United States, we would not allow decisions to be made for us by the US Supreme Court. And what if the only free trade deal on offer is one that keeps the whole UK closely tied to the EU and not just Northern Ireland like at present? That could happen. I think more likely is that this would lead to a, a long period of acrimonious wrangling with the EU and eventually blow up the whole agreement, which would not be in anyone's interest. I mean, if we wanted to play hardball, then we could start saying, OK, we, we have troops in, in Estonia helping to defend the eastern borders of the, e, of the EU against possible Russian adventurism. Why should we, why should we bother? Let's, let's pull them out. Uh, you know, there are, if, if the EU wants to be nasty to us, we could be nasty back. So far, I don't think we really have been. We haven't used that kind of that pressure. But I, one could imagine a situation in which that could happen. That would not be good. Luckily, it didn't come to that. We recorded the episode before the new trade deal was announced. It's got free trade in most goods, but not all of them. There are still different rules in Northern Ireland than to the rest of the UK, and you have to fill out an export declaration to send goods there, just as you now do for sending goods to the rest of Europe. European law applies in Northern Ireland. On the other hand, Professor Toombs will be happy that European law and the European Court of Justice no longer have any role in England, Scotland and Wales. We're free to make our own rules if we want, but this might affect how easily we can trade with the EU under the terms of the deal. I hope you liked that episode. It was produced and edited by me, Louis Wolfe. You heard from the founders and editors of Briefings for Britain, the historian Professor Robert Toombs and the economist Dr Graham Cutchin. If you've got suggestions for what should be covered, get in touch on the Insight Cambridge Facebook or Twitter pages. See you at the beginning of next month for the next episode. Take care and see you then.